insights, interviews, and best practices by clinicians for clinicians. Welcome to GE Healthcare's Clinical View Podcast. Hello again, and welcome to the second installment in the podcast series on perioperative safety. My name is Dr. Robert Bilkowski, and in this section, we will review the topic of postoperative residual paralysis. Specifically, we will get a better understanding of the frequency of occurrence, the potential patient harms that may occur, and the views coming from anesthesiology associations on this topic. The use of non-depolarizing paralytic agents during general anesthesia have been commonplace for decades, and the risk for residual paralysis affecting patient safety in the post-operative setting has been reported dating back to the 1970s, where nearly half of the patients arriving to the post-anesthesia care unit, or PACU, had residual paralysis. Neuromuscular blockade is frequently used during anesthesia to support endotracheal intubation, optimize surgical conditions, and assist with mechanical ventilation in patients who have reduced lung compliance. In addition, the depth of paralysis should be closely monitored during the entire duration of surgery using train-of-force stimulation. Train-of-force monitoring is the most common method used for monitoring the extent of neuromuscular blockade. The train-of-force is calculated by dividing the amplitude of the fourth twitch to the amplitude of the first twitch and monitoring technology exists to support the clinician in making this assessment. If the ratio is less than 0.9, it indicates that residual paralysis remains and there is a continued need to use of a reversal agent. Other methodologies use the focus on differing patterns of stimulation to assess residual paralysis, which includes double burst stimulation, post-tetanic count, and tetanic stimulation. All leverage a similar method of stimulation with the same pulse waveform and pulse duration. What differs is the frequency of impulses and means of evaluating between each stimulation. Double burst stimulation, or DBS, delivers two bursts separated by 750 milliseconds, where the muscle contractions following the second burst is less than the first and allows clinicians to evaluate the fade of contraction between the two bursts. This method is more sensitive for tactile evaluation of a residual blockage and has been shown to be comparable to train of four assessments. Similarly to train of four, it has limited utility to assess deep blocks, but useful during the onset of paralysis and at the time of recovery. Post-tetanic count, or PTC, is more useful during deep blocks, where train of four is considered to be insensitive and supports bridging a patient out of very deep paralysis. The PTC delivers a stimulus of 50 hertz for five seconds, and is followed later by a three-second single supermaximal stimuli and delivered once every second. The number of twitches recognized is inversely proportional to the degree of block and is known as the post-tetanic twitch count. Lastly, tetanic stimulation involves high-frequency stimulation that is usually applied for five seconds. What is observed is for the presence or absence of a muscle contraction fade effect, 
where the absence of fading suggests acceptable levels of paralysis have been attained. Paralysis is comparable to a train of four of approximately 0.85. Compared to DBS or train of four during recovery, the specificity, however, has been reported to be low. To further complicate matters, there are multiple device types that can be used for quantitative assessment for train of four and include accelerometry, kinemiography, and electromyography, to name a few. Acceleromyography, or AMG, has been the most widely studied technology and uses a transducer placed on the muscle of interest to measure the response to an electrical stimuli when applied to that muscle. The muscle most commonly stimulated is the thumb. Kinemiography, or KMG, is closely related to AMG and uses a special type of sensor placed in the groove between the thumb and index finger and senses bending of the thumb in response to electrical stimulation. Lastly, electromyography, or EMG, is considered by experts to be the new gold standard, which measures combined muscle action potentials rather than movement in response to an electrical stimuli. The amplitude of these action potentials is directly proportional to the number of muscle fibers activated, and thus the force of contraction. One limitation is that other forms of electrical stimuli during surgery, like electrocautery, may interfere with the measurements. Literature shows that residual paralysis in the post-operative period is relatively common, where it has been reported to be as high as 40%. Unfortunately, clinicians frequently rely on clinical signs that include, but not limited to, head lift, hand grip, and negative inspiratory force to determine if residual paralysis exists. These clinical signs are insensitive indicators in those patients coming out of general anesthesia and remain reliable only in awake patients. The risk for residual paralysis while the patient remains in the post-anesthesia care unit includes the following. One, the need for tracheal reintubation. Two, impaired oxygenation and ventilation. Three, impaired pulmonary function such as reduced force vital capacity. Four, increased risk for aspiration and pneumonia. Five, pharyngeal dysfunction. And lastly, may culminate in six, a delayed discharge from the PACU. Reintubation in and of itself is a notable risk to the patient and also bears an economic cost to the hospital system. In a publication from the British Journal of Anesthesia, reintubation was shown to increase the risk for cardiac and respiratory complications, extended the length of stay in the PACU, the ICU, and hospital, increased the duration of mechanical ventilation, and ultimately an increased risk for death. Some additional studies add further details on the frequency and importance of monitoring residual paralysis. First, the Recite US study showed that in a 255 patient study in those undergoing abdominal surgery, almost 65% had a train of four ratio less than 0.9 at the time of extubation. This is despite the fact that the patients received reversing agents for neuromuscular blockade and qualitative peripheral nerve stimulation was monitored. Two, 
A large multi-center study from Spain reported that the patients with train of four ratios less than 0.9 in the PACU were at an increased risk for post-operative adverse respiratory events, where the odds ratio was 2.57 and had a higher incidence of reintubation. Third example it shows a retrospective cohort study which looked at the impact of post-operative residual paralysis on ICU admission rates, hospital costs, and hospital lengths of stay. Reported that patients with train of four ratios less than 0.9 had a three times higher risk of ICU admission than those with train of four ratios greater than or equal to 0.9. And lastly, the fourth example. Several studies showed that failure to administer a reversing agent in the operating room was associated with increased complications such as post-operative pneumonia, failure to wean, reintubation, and unplanned ICU admissions. The American Society of Anesthesia, or ASA, issued a recommendation where quantitative neuromuscular monitoring should be used whenever neuromuscular blocking agents are being utilized throughout all phases of anesthesia. It is important to highlight that a quantitative monitor is the ideal for qualitative monitors lack the needed fidelity to determine sufficient reversal from neuromuscular blockade. Furthermore, train of four measurements with qualitative monitors are suitable up to the 0.4 level, which is lower than the 0.9 threshold recommended by the ASA in their guideline. The Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation has issued a position paper and state that residual neuromuscular blockade in the post-operative period is a patient safety hazard that could be addressed partially by better and consistent use of qualitative train of four nerve stimulator monitor, but will ultimately require quantitative or objective train of four monitoring along with traditional subjective observations to eliminate this problem completely. The need for intraoperative train of four monitoring is quite clear and further emphasis on routine use can drive additional improvements in patient safety. Adding one more layer of complexity is the use of Sugambidex, which is a reversal agent following use of neuromuscular blocking agents that has grown in clinical use over the past decade or two and is highlighted by faster recovery times and an improved safety profile than legacy reversal agents. However, the risk of incomplete reversal remains an important clinical problem and use of train of four in combination has been shown to reduce this risk as compared to use of Sugamidex alone without quantitative monitoring. This ends the podcast on the topic of perioperative residual paralysis, and a key takeaway is the fact that this problem remains common and is associated with increased risk for complications that increase the patient's risk for a poor postoperative outcome. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit again on other topics pertaining perioperative safety in coming podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Clinical View Podcasts, brought to you by GE Healthcare. Expand your view at clinicalview.gehealthcare.com.